0: Welcome and thank you for joining us for another episode of the Jane Irrigation Training Series. I'm Richard Restuccia, your host. And today we're gonna to be talking about something that I think gets a question or a subject that comes up with uh, for me from somebody else almost weekly. And that is what is going on with water rates? I really don't understand them. Uh, certainly where I live in Southern California, we pay more for water than we do electricity right now. Uh, And really that shift happened a few years ago. And water is something that uh, everybody pays for. Uh, Everybody has different opinions on the cost and why. And uh, we had an opportunity to speak with Brett Walton today uh, to help give us some clarity on what's happening with water, water rates, and how this just affects the society we live in. Now, for those of you who don't know Brett, he's a uh, reporter for the Circle of Blue. Which is a nonprofit news agency covering fresh water and everything that's uh, connected to the fresh water. Uh, he also writes for the Federal Water Tap. It's a weekly digest of US government water news, and he's the winner of two Society of Environmental Journalists reporting awards. I'm so excited to have him on here today because. This is a this is a man who really knows this subject matter, and uh, in the couple of conversations I've had with him already, it's it's super enlightening. So, Brett, uh, welcome! Thanks for joining us today. So, Brett, yeah, thanks, um, so Richard. Glad yeah, to be here. So, so the uh, the first question I have today, I mean, this is the one I get all the time. Man, I am saving water, but the price just keeps going up. Why do I even bother? It is. Uh, Water
1: rates have a way of inciting uh, passion in people. And for good reason. Water is an essential item, and it's one of those things we have to have. And so when uh, the price goes up, people are rightfully questioning why that is and uh, what can be done about it. So I mean, the basic answer is that conservation in itself, in the big picture, is a good thing. And it keeps rates down in the long term. to get into that, let's look at rates themselves. They're usually two parts, uh, a fixed uh, fee and then a variable fee based on how much you use. And the question to this I, you know, conservation dilemma that people say, well, I'm conserving, I'm doing what I need to do, not watering my lawn, I have water efficient appliances, but still the rates are going up. Well, that's because water utilities and water supply systems are capital intensive systems they have a lot of pipes, a lot of physical assets. You know, Every street in your city or town, there's a pipe under there taking water to, ho- to homes. Uh, so there are hundreds or thousands of miles in a big city of pipes. And then you add on the treatment plants and treatment costs, your sewer costs, You know, there's another pipe for those, regulatory costs. So there's a lot of uh, money that goes into maintaining a water system so that you have reliable clean water at your tap on demand 24 seven. I think we need to look at that as being a huge benefit from what you're paying for water, which if you look at a per gallon rate is really quite reasonable, you know, a couple pennies on the high end per gallon. And now all of that, all of that infrastructure, all of those assets, all of those costs are paid for by utility revenue. That's the model we have in the country. Utilities operate as, um, you know, Kind of like independent businesses they are enterprise funds they are supposed to get all of their operating revenue from user charges now there are some you know, innovative and new ways that utilities are getting revenue so it's not all on the backs of ratepayers but by and large uh, you charge for the service now uh, the conservation argument here is that all of the cheap and easy water has been taken up like there's no, you know, conservation is the low hanging fruit. It is the cheapest source of new water. Um, we have tapped rivers that were, you know, 10 miles away, then we went 50 miles away, then 100 miles away, then 500 miles away. So we have brought water from afar. There's no new easy water out there. All the new water is expensive. You think about desalination, you think about recycled water, you know, $2,000 an acre foot. You think about the CBT in, in Colorado when you're buying you know, 30 or $40,000 per CBT unit. So all of this, if you want new water, if you wanna increase your supply, you're gonna to have to pay for it. So the argument here is that if you can serve, then you don't have to pay those costs of expanding your supply, of acquiring new and expensive supplies. You don't have to treat that additional water. You don't have to build out your system to meet that capacity. And so, yeah, I mean, utilities know this, but they've been looking for ways to make this argument to their customers, you know, a hard number. So you can look at, so here's what conservation brings you. And there've been a couple studies from Alliance for Water Efficiency and the Water Research Foundation, most of which were led by uh, Peter Mayer, who's a water utility demand expert. And he looked at a couple cities, a couple in Arizona, Gilbert and Tucson, and one in Colorado, Westminster and asked a counterfactual, what would have happened if water demand kept on going up uh, and conservation did not occur? And so if your water supply graph looks like this and if it continues to go like this, then you're going to have to meet that demand somehow. And so when his analysis looked at, okay, the cost of those additional supplies if water conservation didn't happen and rates would have been substantially higher if things went on as usual without conservation. So that's the argument utilities use, is that, yes, your rates are going to go up because we have old assets, we have pipes that need to be replaced, we have federal mandates for water quality, we have all these new chemicals that we need to remove from the water, we have combined sewer overflow mandates. There's a lot of costs, but uh, your rates are lower with conservation than they would be if you didn't. So that's that's the argument there. And I think it, it's borne out. You know the costs are real of expanding water supply in this era because there's just not much out there.
0: Yeah, no, that really helps. It really clears it up too. And and right when they were first building the uh, water infrastructure for San Diego, Phoenix, wherever, like you said, it was closer and it was back when gas was a quarter, not, uh, not five and a quarter.
1: Yeah, I mean, energy costs, water is heavy, eight pounds per gallon. Uh, LA moves that up and over the mountains. Um, You you pump it up from the Colorado River through the aqueducts. Central Arizona project pumps it up. So going out and getting water is expensive, not just capital expensive, but
0: operationally expensive with energy and treatment chemicals. Yeah. So I just want to remind everybody, I've got the Q&A and the chat open. So if you've got some questions for Brett, uh, put them in there and I'll ask them when it's appropriate. And I also want to remind you that we're giving away some great Jane Irrigation Training uh, Series t-shirts uh, with, with those questions. So, uh, uh, Brett, the other thing that I think everybody thinks, or maybe not everybody, but um, I think these uh, water agency executives, right, they're selling a uh, water, which everybody needs every day. Uh, it's a monopoly, right? I can't go choose where I'm getting my water. It's just one pipe comes to my house. Are they sitting back and getting rich? I mean, are they big salaries, uh, making tons of money? Um, How's that all work?
1: Uh, I don't know relative salary and some are very well compensated. Um, Those are questions that city councils ask themselves how they attract talent to operate one of the key functions of municipal government. Um, right right and yeah.
0: more is you know I'm, I'm exaggerating a little right because of this uh, this monopoly but really they're operating at uh, uh, very little profit or break even is, is that correct
1: right so with most water service in the country is municipally su- supplied you know government-run utilities about i haven't looked at the numbers recently but i think you know 85 percent of people who get water from a water utility that's municipally supplied and that's What are the primary points of contact people have with their local government? Um, So, yeah, the the point here for utilities is that you're supposed to do it at cost plus depreciation and supply a little little extra to uh, cover maintenance, operation, replacement costs. But a lot of utilities have not been charging the true cost of water service. I just got finished with a big project in Michigan that was called Water's True Cost looking at the impacts and the the challenges that arise from decades of underinvestment in water and sewer systems. Utilities, there's a lot of pressure, and we kicked off this webinar with people complaining about rates. There's a lot of people, there's a lot of uh, public pressure to keep rates low. And city councils are usually in charge of the, the rates. And they have for decades artificially been kept low you know, not enough to be able to put aside money to reinvest in the systems and replacement costs. There have been surveys done by American Water Works Association that ask, "Are you? Do your rates cover current costs, future costs, replacement costs for your system? Do they cover everything you need?" And always, about you know, a third of them, third of utility respondents say no, our rates don't cover everything. So mm-hmm. there is that portion of water suppliers that. Even though rates are going up, they haven't been going up enough. And so that comes to the argument of, do we put all of the water needs on the backs of ratepayers? We saw a partial answer to that with the federal infrastructure bill putting a big chunk of money, bigger than any in the last 50 years, into water and sewer systems. Um, And a lot of that money intended for disadvantaged lower-income communities that would have the, the hardest time paying some of
0: these big costs. Yeah, so uh, cost becomes a real flashpoint, right? This is, uh, I often say, it's hard to get people uh, excited about uh, water. Uh, Lots of times I talk about water, they, you know, glass over, but certainly when you talk rates, or um, sprinklers on when it's uh, raining, uh, people (laughs) get furious. The other thing that is real emotional right now, uh, kind of a flashpoint as well, is uh, our our first question that's come in here, and it is, uh, when will non-functional turf be banned in the West? Uh, Now, I know that's not really a water rate question, but you look at this, you talk about it a lot. Do Do you have an opinion on that?
1: Oh, it is a water
0: rate question indirectly.
1: And non-functional turf is starting to be banned. Las Vegas had a well-publicized ban last year on non-functional ornamental turf. So that's the stuff that goes in the median strips. It's the the filler around office parks. Uh, It's not your home lawn, um, but it is these things that we put in, in our built environment that fill up empty space. So that stuff is going to be out of the question. But it is a water rates question because of how water demand works. And if you look at a water uh, demand graph from a utility, they are often kind of bell curved, some more pronounced than others. There's a winter baseline. So I'm thinking here in Seattle and other Western cities where you have hot, dry summers and cooler, wetter winters. Uh, So I live in Seattle, which has a reputation for being exceedingly rainy and wet. And it is for six months of the year from November to about now. And if you look at the water demand graph from Seattle Public Utilities, it's flat from November to April. It is 105 gallons, 105 million gallons a day for that entire time period because there's no outdoor watering here in the winter because it's raining all the time. And so that is, you know, your indoor demand basically. And when cities build out their water systems, they're building for peak demand. So they're building for how much is going to be our maximum use. So the size of your pipes, your treatment capacity, all of that is to meet peak demand. And peak demand in summer is driven by outdoor irrigation. So lawns, gardens, all that. When you have a high summer demand, then you have systems that are overbuilt for um, what they could be. And that leads into your rates. So when you have you know, treating water to put on your lawn, so all this water gets treated, you're purified to drinking water standards, and we're putting it on the lawns. So that does relate to rates. And you know, all these cities have different demand curves, which I think is quite interesting to look at because water, you see people are, are interested in water, um, but that's you know, different city by city. And the, the culture and the ethics and the, the way we relate to water does vary. So I'm in Seattle, I'll use Seattle examples because I know it quite well. And Seattle's demand curve, I said you know, about 105 million gallons a day in the winter our peak use in the summer is usually 170 million gallons a day. So about 1.7 times the base. And even last year, when we had three consecutive days of 100 degree temperatures, which has not happened in Seattle, um, so we had just a horrendous week-long heat wave. Even in the, the middle of that heat wave, peak demand for water in Seattle was about 200 million gallons a day. So only two times base. Now you compare that to uh, places like Denver where in a normal summer your summer peak demand is three times base, three yeah. times your winter base. Or I was in Utah reporting a story in the fall and talking with some of the water managers there and the Jordan Valley Water Conservancy District which is a wholesaler for Salt Lake County and some of the suburbs around Salt Lake City he said that their summer peak demand is six times winter base, wow. And so these are all uh, driven by outdoor irrigation, and it really affects how your system is sized and built and operated. And that's, you know, a cultural thing. In Seattle, almost every lawn is brown. Like, there's an ethic of not watering your lawn in the summer. And that's why our our summer uh, peak demand is so much lower compared to our, our winter base demand. It's just people don't, people let their lawns go golden and then they revive again in the fall. Um, but that is you know, a real driver of, of water costs is the, those peak demands. So if you can cut down on peak demand, then you can cut down your
0: water system costs. Uh, because there's so much extra infrastructure that has to be built to meet that demand. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's very interesting.
1: Bigger, your treatment plant capacity has to be bigger. And then it sits idle those other times of the year.
0: Yeah. So uh, along these lines, right, um, we, and you already helped answer this a little bit, but, you know, I look at places like uh, Las Vegas and Phoenix, right, very little rainfall, seven inches and four inches a year. Uh, Pretty good sized populations um, based uh, on your article. And by the way, I love the water rates across the U.S. uh, article that uh, you you put out uh, periodically. Um, They're paying a family of four about, you know, $45 a month for water. San Francisco or Boston, places that get a lot more rain, uh, maybe have higher cost of living, uh, but they're paying four times the amount. Uh, of what uh, what people are paying in uh, Las Vegas and Phoenix. So um, help, help us understand why that is.
1: Right. I'm, if you've seen one water system. You've seen one water system. They all have different costs. They all have different age of pipes, age of assets. They all have different, you know, cost of living, treatment costs. Some have federal mandates to clean up sewer systems or, um, you know, chemicals that they need to remove that others don't so and some have benefited from federal investments made decades ago so las vegas has the benefit of having hoover dam built right next door and phoenix area benefits from having the central arizona project built with a lot of federal money uh, if those cities had to build those assets all on their own, they would have much more expensive water, but they do have a benefit from a, a federal subsidy that's baked in. And there's just, you know, um, you know here in, in Seattle, we have relatively high rates, but that was a conscious decision based on a, a drought back in the, I think, late 80s, early 90s, where system planners were looking at water demand and they didn't want to have to go find another water source. Um, so there was you know, tiered increasing block rates put in place. Um, there was the conscious decision to use price as kind of a regulator behavior. Then also we have acquired, we, Seattle owns its watersheds. It's a relatively rare thing in the country. So I mean, system by system, all the costs depend on that system. So you have to look under the hood to see what is driving each of those. And it's very difficult to compare system to system uh, because of all those different factors.
0: Yeah, that's interesting, right? And something I think people are looking at more and more as they decide where they're gonna live in in the nation and in the world. Um, So, and you mentioned Hoover Dam, uh, Lake Mead and Lake Powell are both uh, facing some issues right now, the levels of both those reservoirs are very low. Uh, What's happening there? I've seen some things about power generation and uh, is this as dire of the situation as uh, we might think?
1: Yes, uh, it is a severe concerning circumstance in the Colorado River Basin right now. And not just the Colorado River Basin, but the entire West, because a lot of these water systems are plumbed together. Uh, Cities that draw water from the Colorado River, the biggest cities are not even in the basin. Denver, Albuquerque, Los Angeles, San Diego, um, Phoenix. Well, Phoenix is in the basin, but. there's a lot of transfers outside the basin. So the Colorado River Basin reaches farther than its watershed would dictate. But the the, low, the short answer is that there's been declining runoff, higher temperatures, climate changes, sapping the amount of water that's flowing into the system. There's been some reduction in demands. The lower basin states, Arizona, California, um, and Nevada have reduced their draw on the river, but not enough to counteract the very steep decline in runoff. Yeah. And uh concept here, runoff is the amount of water that goes into your reservoirs. People usually look at snowpack and say, Oh, do we have a good year, snowpack year, or a bad snowpack here? But that is not the best way to look at it now because we have higher temperatures that are taking away, that are decimating the the water content before it reaches the reservoir. So the runoff efficiency. There's dry soils in recent years that have sucked water before it reaches the reservoirs. So even though you might have uh, an average snowpack, you can still have a very below average runoff into the reservoirs. Uh, and that's what we've had the last couple of mm-hmm. years. And we'll also have this year. Um, The impacts of that, we have Pal is the second biggest reservoir in the country, Mead the biggest reservoir by capacity. They are fractions of their capacity right now. They are both at historic lows. There are emergency actions being taken right now to try and preserve the water levels in Lake Pal, which are about 30 feet from the point at which hydropower generation becomes doubtful. What the Interior Department feds are doing is releasing more water from upstream reservoirs into Powell and reducing releases from PAL itself to try and preserve the water level there so that hydropower itself doesn't sputter out. Uh, in Lake Mead, which is also going down, uh, your biggest, the biggest concerns are the state's downstream of Mead. Um, 10 years ago or so, you would have said that Las Vegas, which gets all of its water from Mead, was in the precarious position. But Las Vegas invested over a billion dollars in a new intake at the bottom of the lake in a new pumping station to allow Las Vegas to draw water even when Lake Mead drops below the point at which it can be released downstream. Mm-hmm. Las Vegas had this $1.4 billion insurance policy which now looks like a pretty good move on their part. Very expensive, but they will be able to draw water even when the lake continues
0: to decline. Well, it's interesting uh, that uh, especially um, Nevada, Arizona, California uh, have an agreement about Colorado River water uh, that was paid for many years ago, Uh, but it feels like um, maybe Nevada and certainly Arizona wish they were getting a bigger share. Um, do you see any chance for uh, some redistribution, or you know, paying of some funds from uh, one state to the other to capture more water out of the Colorado River?
1: The allocations of Colorado River water have been set for a while now. Uh, that's been sacrosanct, and some of that might change. Who knows, but they are the, the states are renegotiating right now the interim guidelines for how the system will operate. Those uh, renegotiations are due by the end of December 2025. Hmm. And it's taking place at a time of water supply emergency, to be frank. So everything could be on the table. And we will see in the next few years where states fall with uh, how to distribute water.
0: But yeah, it's sure. Going to be a interesting. Major
1: question that will be answered quicker than people had hoped.
0: Right, and uh, it, it, it sat at once you know, one way for many, many years. Right, just because we couldn't really take all the water that was allocated. But now um, uh, we can use it, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how that uh, negotiation goes. Right, I mean, this is, um, this is some pretty important. Um, um, a commodity for growth of uh, our cities and, and where we're living yeah the the renegotiation
1: of the colorado river interim guidelines is one of the big topics in colorado and western water politics in the next few years
0: yeah so then um getting back now to uh, water rates those were a couple of questions that came in from our audience so i want to get back to water rates and um one thing that i uh, worry about is i think as these water rates go up I think it hurts uh, our low-income families more than it hurts most. Uh, Is that an accurate uh, uh, thought and and, and why?
1: Right, so utilities, when they're looking at their operations, they have this three-part balance that they need to accomplish. That is encourage conservation, keep their revenue stable so that utility operations can continue, and also to make sure that water is affordable for the poorest people. And these three things are sometimes in conflict. If you raise rates to ensure revenue stability, then you have potential effect on affordability. So it's something that is front of mind right now for utilities, affordability, especially with water rates, uh, having climbed as they have in the last two decades uh, is now top of mind. There are a number of ways to, to do this. You can do it through the rates themselves. A lot of people champion increasing block rates as a way to uh, penalize high water use and to provide a very cheap uh, tier of water for you know, low income people. So very affordable water if you use very little, very expensive water if you use a lot. So the thinking here is you, know, you pay a lot more to water your lawn, the water that you have for in, uh, in-home use for you know, drinking water, bathing, washing, those sorts of things would be cheaper. The the potential drawback there is that increasing block rates, as people have told me, are pro-low water user, not necessarily pro-poor. You might have a a very large number of people living in a household, a low-income household. There might be nephews, grandkids, multi-generation, which would increase water use if you have, say, eight people in a house. So that's not necessarily targeting the poorest, it's targeting, you know, water use itself. So more cities are looking at assistance, uh, affordability programs and our utilities are trying to encourage the federal government to step in with a water rate assistance the way the federal government does with energy bill assistance. So we've had a federal assistance program for energy bills since 1981 called LIHEAP. Just last year, we got a pilot version of that for water called LIWAP, Low Income Water Systems Program, um, that is not anywhere near the assistance that the energy program gets. It's not anywhere near uh, enough to meet the need across the country, but it's something that came out of the pandemic when there was a lot of concern, public health implications of people having water shut off or not being able to afford their water bills during a pandemic. So that's another thing to watch is how that plays out and states right now are going through the allocation process for getting money out to people. Um, But that that is not a cure all because these means tested programs like LIHEAP don't reach everyone that is eligible for them to be reached. And assistance programs, uh, some utilities are big enough to be able to afford them, others may have half of their customers who would be eligible and they can't fund you an assistance program out of their own revenue so there's got to be utilities are saying we need to be able to charge rates that allow us to do the work necessary to have reliable water so we need some outside assistance from states or federal government to be able to provide subsidized water for the poorest people while we continue to do, do the work we need to do in california where you are richard is one of the states looking at a state Uh, program for affordable water. And I think that's part of the budget uh, talks this year.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because I always think about if I'm low income, I usually don't own the building I'm living in. If the pipes are leaking, if the toilet's leaking, I'm calling my landlord, right? I'm asking him to be fixed, but there's not the incentive there to get it fixed right away, maybe necessarily. And I'm being charged more as a result. And, you know, it's, uh, and Ten years ago, not such a big deal when I could get four gallons for a penny. And I love that you mention how affordable water is. But now that I'm getting one gallon for a penny, it's you know it's getting worse. It's it's getting much tougher.
1: Yeah, I mean one gallon for a penny is cheap until you have a pipe break that sends ten thousand gallons into the basement, and then it's right. quite expensive. But as you mentioned, yeah, uh, water affordability is not just a, a water issue; it's a housing issue because a lot of the Um, poor people live in older housing stock that do have more problems with plumbing leaks and things and inefficient fixtures. So there's uh, a movement going on to connect these two things, water affordability and housing stock, um, you know, really looking holistically at the problem.
0: Right. So then the other thing, speaking of leaks, I read a Stanford study from last year that said something like 20 to 50% of the wa- treated water that we're sending to the cities is leaking out of the pipes. Um, do you think that's accurate? And ha- had you heard this before? What, what in the world do we do about that?
1: I haven't seen their study. I would say 50% is high, very high. Uh, the AWWA standard, I think, is something like the goal for utilities is somewhere between 5 and 10%. Uh, don't quote me on that because I'm not sure the exact number. But 50% is a large amount. That's something that you it, see in in like Karachi and Mumbai.
0: Right, and that was part of the uh, that was part of the article, right? It's somewhere between 20 and 50, is what they were saying. And and part of the point is we don't know because it's so hard to figure out how much is leaking under the ground.
1: It is, yeah. And this is uh, for people who are interested in water leaks and these sorts of things. The Alliance for Water Efficiency is they do periodic reports on um, state requirements for leaks and and that sort of thing. And I think from the the last report, maybe only a handful of states, Georgia comes to mind, have state mandated standards for pipe leak rate. And so that's where utilities are required to know their leak rates and get it under a certain threshold. But it's, it's rare. It's not many states have that, and Georgia, I think, is one of them. Texas might also, but only for certain jurisdictions.
0: Right. So, well, let's just say it's 20% or 25. It's still a lot. Um, uh, how come we're? Uh, how come this is happening? Why aren't we getting more of this fixed?
1: Right. And so, part of it is that there's a lot of pipes in the city. So you think of a big city, say Houston, with 6,000 miles of water pipes. This is a one of the opportunities for technology. Is that if you had to brute force manpower, send you know utility staff all around the city every day looking for leaks, you'd take a lot of people. Yeah. Um, but there are you know new there are companies that have leak analytics and acoustic leak detection and sensors being placed on pipes. Um, So this, this is an argument for where technology can come in and innovation can help identify those leaks. Because like we said, new water is expensive if you have to go out, like there's not much in the rivers. And if you're trying to acquire it from say farms or some other source on the market, you can pay a lot for it. So conservation in this case is making sure that the stuff that is in your system already stays in your system and doesn't leak out into the ground.
0: Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you. That, that helps. So we have time for two more questions that have come in. And, and one of the questions is this, Brett. Um, inflation, everybody, you know, you hear about inflation every day right now, right? Inflation of water. Uh, but it's two different subjects. But I think they're actually going to be the same subject pretty soon. Is the inflationary times we're in, is it going to affect water rates?
1: It will when there are big energy costs for running a water system. So when energy costs go up, those operational costs go up for energy, for uh, water utilities, the same as they do for people who uh, have to put gas in their car. So there will be operational cost increases. Um, How that plays out into rates would be something that would take much longer because rates are often set for multiple years at a time. Um, the, The bigger issue with inflation, I heard a story about this a couple of weeks ago, is that it is, really increasing the cost of water projects. So there's the concern from utilities that this federal infrastructure bill is not going to lead to as much benefit as had been hoped because costs of materials are going up, um, labor costs are going up. So a lead pipe replacement that might have cost $5,000 per line a year ago is now costing 7,000 or 8,000 or $9,000 per line. So you know, cities, I've heard you know, cities in Michigan that are reducing the number of lead service lines are going to replace because their budget doesn't pencil out anymore.
0: Yeah, interesting. So, um, and, then, and then finally, right, one, one thing I think we can all agree on is uh, water is gonna be more expensive in five years, 10 years, 15 years than it is today. And um, I, I know you and I had a discussion about um, how much more expensive Uh, Do you see it doubling in the next 10 years? What what, what do you think about that?
1: Um, So you can talk about national averages, but it doesn't help people understand their local circumstances. Like I said, each utility is different, has different revenue streams and all of that. Um, It's a time for utilities to look at their operations and their revenue. And the goal is to, with infrastructure bill that's coming in, and all this work that's being done on water systems is to, to not just recreate what's already there, but to create a system that is cheaper to operate, has lower OM costs, and will have less rating, smaller rate increases into the future because of that. Um, so it's a good bet that water rates will continue to increase, but it's you got to say, compared to what? And the hope is that. Changes can be made at the utility level and also from revenue level. Um, I didn't mention this before, but some cities are using sales taxes to bring more revenue into their water systems. Atlanta is one example that voters there have approved a 1% sales sales tax for the last, I don't know, eight years that has provided revenue, $130, $140 million a year to the water department that has... Meant Atlanta hadn't didn't need to raise rates for eight years. So there's new revenue streams from taxes. Some utilities are looking at data. Um, they collect, can collect with sensors a lot more data about their systems, about how water is being used, where it's being used, that companies like irrigation companies might be interested in to see where demand is in the system and how it changes. So data could be a revenue source, the services, you could be water utilities as service providers. So there's all sorts of new ways that um, utilities could get the money they need to operate without putting it all on the ratepayers.
0: Yeah, well, it's certainly very hopeful to see all this renewed interest or new interest in water, right? We, we were not having these types of discussions 15 years ago, that's for sure. Um, so with uh, what you just said, is there a way for people to invest in water?
1: There are a number of ways. Usually people There are elaborate and complex uh, investment things, and then there's investing in the companies that are involved in the water space, and that's usually the the easiest entry point. There's water ETFs, there's futures markets now, so there's a lot of interest in water, and those opportunities are definitely out there.
0: Yeah, so that'll be uh, interesting to see what develops in those uh, those areas too, because uh, even water isn't a sure bet. Nothing is. <laughs> Right. Well, Brett Walton, you have been fabulous today. Um, one of the brightest and best in, uh, in water right now. We got a uh, chance to spend some time with you this afternoon, and I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you for being such a great guest and bringing all this uh, valuable information. I want to say thank you to all the viewers. You know, um, uh, without you guys, we wouldn't be here. So thank you. We appreciate you spending some of your day with us. Remember, you can see all our trainings at the JanesUSA.com forward slash trainings page or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. So again, Brett, thanks so much. Uh, Have a great weekend and uh, here's to uh, conserving more water. Thanks, Richard. Okay. Bye, everybody.